0: The real truth is they want to be coached so hard, so bad. They want to be pushed beyond their capabilities every minute of every day. They want to be told every day what they have to do to get better. The fastest way to lose your best players, don't coach them. The fastest way to get them to lose respect for you is let them get away with crap that they know that they're not supposed to be doing.
1: Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome 11 time women's national champion head coach of the Yukon Huskies, Gino Oriyama. Coach Oriyama is here today to discuss elevating talent, coaching your best players, the balance of teaching reads versus rules and half-court offense, and we talk French wine and directional defenses during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coach Gino Oriema. Well, coach, let's dive in. We want to start with coaching talented people. And your program is one that is able to get some of the top most talented basketball players in the world year in and year out. What is it about a certain player when you bring them into your program that most excites you about getting the chance to coach them?
0: The exciting thing, I think, is when you see how effortless they flow from one thing to another. It's remarkable. The best players, they never seem to be at a loss, no matter where on the court they are or what situation you put them in, you know, what is happening at the time. So you can tell during a workout, it's funny I want to say back in 1997 or something like that, I recruited a kid from St. Petersburg, Russia. And at the time I had never seen her play. I've only, you know, I'd only spoken to her on the phone. I've seen, you know, it's, a film where she played in European junior championships. And, you know, you couldn't tell much, but she was MVP of the junior world championship and her English was really good. And just through conversation, you know, I'm listening to her and kind you know, questions that I asked about what she believed in and what she thought of as a player and what her goals were. I thought, all right, you know, I want this kid on my team. And finally, when she showed up on campus. She had like this little Adidas travel bag, you know, and her whole world belongings were in that bag. And she walked in, you know, and she put her stuff down and we talked. And about half an hour later, I said, you want to work, work out? And she said, yeah. So we go to a basket and I put her through one of our workouts. And I came back in and I said to one of my assistants, I said, that's the best player ever to come to Connecticut. And she said, well, well, how do you know that? I said, I just told the way she moves, the way she just flowed from one spot on the floor to the other, from one drill to the other. That no matter where I gave her the ball, what I asked her to do, it was just so natural. There was very little thought involved to it. So when you see a kid that can do that, you go, I can't wait to see what happens later on when they really understand the game better, put four really good players around somebody like that. So that's a quality that I think they're born with in some ways, you know, and and they have so much confidence in their own abilities. The kid that I have right now, Paige Becker's, the trait that she has that all great players have is she never goes too fast. Yeah. She's never in a hurry to get from one thing to another. She's mm-hmm. never in a rush to get her shot off or get open. She shoots at the exact right time. Everything is done on point and on time. And she's only a freshman. So you go like, well, how does she know that? You know, the great ones just have that in them.
2: Like you said, with Paige Beckers, when you say the great ones are never in a rush, do you think it's because their knowledge of the game or because their skill level is what helps them slow down?
0: I think both, but they're so confident in what they can do because they know they can. Mm-hmm. So there's never a time for doubt, a time for panic, a time for being unsure. A lot of players that I find that aren't as skilled or aren't as confident, an example, they catch the ball, and the first thing they do is they put their head down, dribble, and then when somebody forces them to stop, they stop, they pick up the ball, and they look around, and they go, well, well, uh, yeah. I don't know where the hell I was going. I don't know how I got here and you can see their mind. I have the ball in my hand. I've used up my dribble and uh, nobody's open and I'm in deep shit right now. <laughs> you know, and and, yeah. and you see them do that over and over again. And you just know it's because their mind isn't working because they don't know what to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They think they see something that isn't there. They're in a hurry to get from point A to point B. They're not quite sure Of their ability to either go by somebody or hit the open man or hit a pull up jump shot or, you know, jump stop, turn around and find the guy for an open three. So, what they end up doing is they just outrun the situation and it's because they're not confident in their own ability. So, I think those two things are related, you know, uh, skill level and confidence. Those two things go together and I equate it to. When you first learn to drive a car, when you first learn to drive a car, you get in the car and every 500 feet is like a mile. You're like, uh, uh, uh. you know, you're you're not quite sure. You're not quite sure. You're not quite sure. You stop. You don't know where you're going, you know? And then what happens is you get in the highway, somebody beeps behind you, you hit the gas, you go flying. And and now you're in a panic as opposed to when you know where you're going and you've been driving, just put your hand on the steering wheel, lay your wrist on there and you're having a conversation and you go and you go at the speed you want to go at. And that's what the great players do. They're always in that mode.
1: Coach, how do you with a player, let's say like Paige, you know, your role in pushing her to higher and higher levels, somebody that comes in with that skill set and that talent. What is it that you do? What are your conversations? What are your offseason talks with her to push her even further?
0: You know, I don't know what other coaches think, but um, I hate my best players. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, like, I think they, I think they suck, you know, um, <laughs> like they, they do come in with this unbelievable talent, their knowledge of the game, the incredible skill level. But here's what else they bring with them. It's veiled. You know, you don't see it when you're recruiting them. They're not blatant with it. But there's this arrogance that they have and this belief. I asked Paige Beckers recently, I said, let me ask you a question. When you step on the floor every game, do you think you're the smartest player on the floor? She said, yes, I do. I said, okay, well, that's good. I said, "Uh, even smarter than the coaches? And now she went, "Um, um, uh, yeah. (laughs) You know, and you're like, that's the part you got to deal with. They think they're so smart. They think they're so good that they don't really need coaching. That's the underlying. The real truth is they want to be coached so hard, so bad. They want to be pushed beyond their capabilities every minute of every day. They want to be told every day what they have to do to get better and you know and they'll act like they'll be indignant that you actually said to them you can't do this. And then when they make a mistake, they swear to you that they didn't do it or why they did it, <laughs> they have an excuse for it when you have it right on film of exactly what they did. So I love the fact that you have to coach them hard, you have to hold them accountable You have to show them that they're not as good as they think they are, even though they're the best player in the country, maybe, and that they have a lot to learn. And that's the part I love about it the best, you know, that they think, you know, all they want you to do is just put them out on the floor and let them go. But they want to be coached so hard. And I think a lot of coaches make the mistake of being easy on their best players. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to bust their chops you know they might transfer you know i don't want to lose my best player you know the fastest way to lose your best player is don't coach them Mm -hmm. fastest Mm -hmm. way to get them to lose respect for you is let them get away with with crap that they know that they're not supposed to be doing yeah so the better the player the harder they have it at connecticut the more i hate them you know and, and they and they fight with me i fight with them and then you know, when we get back from the final four, you know, we laugh and we have a great time. And then we start the process all over again the following year.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Coach, in your conversations or your talks with your best players, how much of an input do you want from them as you go into a season as far as maybe what you want to run offensively or some of the things you're going to try to do tactically?
0: Well, it's an interesting question because well, a long time ago, I had run into Mike D'Antoni at the USA basketball. You know, he was coaching the Knicks. So I went down to see him. You know, we talked about his time coaching Steve Nash, you know, and all that. And I came back to campus and I remember saying to Renee Montgomery, I said, Renee, I want you to take a look at this. So we watched it, you know, a lot of this stuff. I said, I think we can do this, huh? I said, what do you think? You think you can do this? She goes, Yeah, coach, I got this. I said, you could have some fun with this, you know. She goes, yeah. I said, all right, let's go with it. So we instilled a lot of the principles that Mike was doing in Phoenix that he brought to New York with him, you know, where the guard dominated the ball. And it was everything was quick and everything was done, you know, at a pace that I knew Renee wanted to play. And I knew she would push our team to play at that pace. And I knew we had really good players that could feed off of Renee. And if she had been overwhelmed and said, no, I don't think I can do that, or then, you know, I would have had to scrap it and go in a different direction. But, yeah, i do that. I did it with Mariah Jefferson one year and Tony Parker. You know, I, I used these examples and I said, Mariah, watch this. So I shared like 15 minutes. I said, that's who you need to be this year. And she watched that film on a regular basis and tried to emulate him. So I I always want their input. I always want to know what would you feel comfortable doing? Uh, I did that at the Olympics with, you know, Sue and Diana. It's different when they get older. It's different when they're in their thirties with Sue and D when they're 30, you sometimes don't want to do that.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, Hey Sue, Hey D, what do you guys think? You guys think this will work? Yeah. Coach, you know, half of this stuff is really, really good. The other half, that shit will never work. (laughs) And you're like, man, (laughs) absolutely (laughs) on the follow-up
2: when you're having conversations with some of your better players about how they would like the offense to run
0: yeah
2: i guess as a coach what is the line to make sure you know every team has role players or you know the players that aren't going to be the focal points and balancing kind of yeah we're going to center the offense around this one player these two players but also getting buy-in from the other people that are just as important and will make the team succeed as
0: well. Yeah. You know, when I say to Renee, let's say, or Sue and D about this is what we want to do, you know, they look around and they know that our offense, my style of play is always based on passing the ball. So I would never institute an offense where passing wasn't the foremost skill you had to have. So everybody on my team knows when they get open, and it's the spot from where they're supposed to be really good at, and that's the shot that they've been working on, they're going to shoot it. They don't have to worry about what I think. Yeah. So every one of my players knows when they're open, they're going to get the ball. The problem that coaches run into, I think, when they say, okay, we're going to build the offense around these two guys, which I don't do, but invariably the good players, the ball always gets to them somehow. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. You know, I mean, sometimes you've got to orchestrate something. But problem some coaches have is when they build their offense like that, these two guys are going to take thirty five shots, and the other guys are going to have to stand there and watch. And ho- you know, like I love Mike D'Antoni, and I get it, you know. But that whole thing in Houston with that offense and the one guy dominating the ball, I don't know that I could coach like that,
1: right? Uh-huh. And,
0: and I don't know that you could get. Buy in at the college level like that, you could get a buy in from a guy standing in the corner and hope Harden passes you the ball if you're paying him ten million. Yeah. I mean, I I I, I think you get buy in. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll take I'll that buy-in. job. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know that you know. I think role players need to be valued, and some role players just aren't scorers, and some role players are great rebounders. However, the game has changed so much. That if you can't shoot the ball, then you can't play basketball in the way the game is played today. Yeah, That's all there is to it. Yeah. That idea of, you know, hey, we need that guy in there because they're a great defender. Hey, we need that guy in there because they're a great rebounder. Yeah, okay, great. You do that. Meanwhile, I got five guys you're going to have to guard because all five of them can score. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And if, you, if you don't have that, you have trouble winning these days.
1: Coach, kind of moving into more of a tactical conversation, and I guess it kind of relates to what we were just talking about, but early season, when you're building your offense, let's say it will take half court offense. What's the balance say in the first month or so of practice when you're instilling kind of your flow or offensive motion, the balance of installing rules within the offense or reads, what are you teaching or working on from day one? Are you putting in rules of, Hey, the ball goes here, we're always back cutting. Or are you teaching from the beginning reads within the offense and what's the balance of the two?
0: I do believe that depends a lot on what kind of team you have that year and what are they capable of absorbing? Yeah. What's their IQ? What's their basketball IQ? I've had some teams where from the very first day of practice to the last day, all we're doing is is read the defense and react because they're really, really smart. So I'll give you, Francis, Brianna Stewart's senior year, maybe. We probably had four actions that we ran almost the entire season. And then from there, we just said, all right, you guys make a play out of these four things. And there's been times when you've had to really orchestrate that we need you to cut here. We need you to move to this spot. You really have to give them a lot of direction. Yeah. And to me, I've made mistakes in this where I've given players too much credit for being too smart and just put them in situations where they have to read and react. And that's not the team we had that year. So they struggle with it. I do think there's a balance there based on what your team looks like. But the quicker you can get to your players making reads rather than following rules, I believe you can become a better team because the analogy that I use is all those rules and all that style of play will probably get you to the sweet 16. If you're talented enough, maybe, maybe, maybe you can get into the final eight game, but by the time you get to that level, Whoever you're playing, those last three games of the year, last four games of the year, whatever your favorite plays are, you ain't running any of those plays because <laughs> they're going to blow up. They're going to blow up that shit every single time down the floor. So your players are going to need to be able to, you know, make reads and play. So all year long, you got to be able to just keep getting better and better and better at that. That was a big problem we had this year at the Final Four. Baylor kicked that butt. Then we went on a 19-0 run where it was just boom, 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 boom. But then a couple of days later against Arizona and they blew up a lot of our stuff that our guys are like, well, what do I do now? Well, they're all freshmen. They're a bunch of young guys. You know, I get it. We have a lot of young guys, but had they been better at reading certain situations earlier, seeing it before it developed, you know, not worrying so much about where do I go during this action I think we would have been way better off. So I think you got to get your team to that level if you want to beat the really good teams.
2: Coach, in terms of getting to that level, when you start in the preseason, is it mainly, do you start with, let's give them the situation and see how they read? Or is it, let's give them a situation and dictate an action and like start kind of going from rules to reads or starting with reads and then seeing what we need to make rules?
0: Yeah. I'll start with like a two-on-zero, three-on-zero drill. Mm -hmm. After we do that for a day or so, I will then say, okay, we're going to run 41, and this involves a dribble handoff, hit the high post, back cut, and then I'll say, see, this is what we've been working on, right? This dribble handoff and this pass to the post player when we've been working on on three-on-zero. Me personally, I like to start just doing basketball drills, you know, like pass and cut. Dribble handoff, you know, pitch and catch, like things that involve two or three people moving together. And then the rules come in when you say, okay, this is how this action starts. And now halfway through it, I say, "But see how it ends? It ends with our drill. So whatever we're doing, the minute you get stuck and you don't recognize something, the next pass will automatically trigger something that you've seen in all of our drills. So just go with it. You know, so there's yeah. no, hey, let's run 41. Dribble handoff, come off, hit the high post, cut. All uh, right, now they want to, uh, what? Okay, head tap. Here comes a high ball screen in the middle of the floor. Yeah. All right, let's just be like every other team in the world, all right? Why yeah. don't we just start with that shit and not go, not do all this other stuff? <laughs> yeah. Right, you know? right, yeah. <laughs> right, so that, to me, that's the bailout that coaches have done. You know, the bailout that coaches have done is, all uh, right, this pass, cut, Ah, uh, screw it. We didn't get the shot we wanted. Two passes. All right. High <laughs> ball screen. Mm-hmm. Everybody's face. And let's just try to create. Yeah. If I did that with Page Beckers, if I gave Page Beckers the ball instead of middle ball screen, we may have won more games. I mean, we lost two games, but <laughs> we may have done something different. I don't know. But I don't think the other guys on my team would have been as good of players as they were down the stretch or we have been as happy.
1: Yeah. And coach, that actually leads to My next question, which was the balance between ball movement and sort of the ball stopping in the hands of certain players that are capable enough of creating you know, an advantage on their own. So for you, what is that balance of wanting good ball movement, but also being able to recognize when the ball is in the hand of someone that you
0: just let them play? Well, the big thing that I've noticed, the good players, they keep the ball moving and they somehow... If your offense is structured properly, your best players will end up with the ball more times than not in a really good situation and usually at the end of a shot clock situation. Now, a lot of that has to do with how good is your best player at moving without the ball and how unselfish are the kids on your team that they know who your best player is and are looking for them at crucial situations. If you don't have that kind of setup, then... You have to orchestrate it and you have to make sure that your offense is, look, your offense is either flow. Okay. And you don't worry about that stuff or your offense is let's do two or three actions real quick through this. And then at the end, we are running a specific action to get this guy, the ball at this spot at this time. So it's a philosophy that you have. Some people say, let's run a play. And then if we don't get a shot, let's go into movement and play basketball. So the ball just keeps moving. And then some people play with, hey, look, let's just have some action, see what we get. We don't have anything. Then we go right into this specific thing where this specific guy has the ball. The problem with guys getting stuck with the ball for me is you haven't told them or you haven't worked enough on, Each kid gets to hold the ball for one second. Mm -hmm. So when you catch it, you have one second to decide, shoot it, drive it, or pass it. So if you're holding the ball for two, three, now we got a problem. So I, I don't like that. I don't care if it's my best player and my not so good player. I don't want anybody holding the ball longer than one second. Catch and shoot it, catch and drive it, catch and pass it.
1: Coach, do you drill that or is that just part of the fabric of your team? You know, or is that something you guys actively work on?
0: No, that's a drill that I think you have to run. I got it from the San Antonio Spurs. They call it their 0.5 drill, where they give their guys 0.5 seconds. Okay. Where, you know, you might set up, you know, a one on one situation where you, you know, you flip the guy the ball, the guy catches it, and he's got to recognize, she's got to recognize. Am I open to shoot it or do I have to drive it? Because, you know, when you watch a game and the kid catches the ball and puts it on the floor and meanwhile, the kid never really closed out and they're waiting for them on the drive.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Or kid will catch it, here comes the closeout and they'll shoot it with a hand in their face and it's not a good shot. So you're trying to say, we're teaching you how to get a wide open shot and how to recognize when you're guarded and you need to drive it, when you're open, And you need to shoot it. Or there's that guy right there. They're open right away. So give him the ball. It's a specific drill that you have to run.
2: Coach, just sticking within, we mentioned drills a couple of times. Within your practices, how many drills do you like to do before then, you know, let's start getting into five on five. Let's start to play.
0: Yeah, I have fallen on the wrong side of that a lot of times where we don't play enough. You know, we break things down and we... We do a lot of three on three or four on four, and then when we're finished, you know, you look back and you say, "I wish we had played more." So what I'm learning now, today's world, is with these young players, they hate drills. <laughs> they absolutely hate them. And we, you know, when Diana Taurasi was playing and that team, we could go five on zero and run, you know, dummy offense for like 15 minutes straight and they would do it like their life depended on it. And, yeah. you know, I would have coaches come watch and be like, damn, man, you guys cut harder in practice than my guys <laughs> cut in games. You know, how do you get them to cut that hard? You know, all the time, all the time, all the time. And now today, when you see that you have these drills, And guys are like, man, why are we doing this? You know, why, why, why? And then as soon as you put them in a competitive situation, you know, full court, four on four, full court. You know, keep score, five on five, full court. Now their eyes light up and they just want to play. So you've had to balance with, okay, we need to do some drills because you got to learn how to play, guys. You got to learn how to play the way I want you to play. But one thing that I've noticed now is, with today's players, you have to play more five on five full court. No question about it. So what used to be maybe 60, 40, you know, 60% drills and 40% play. Now I really think it's, you know, 30% drills and 70% they want to play.
2: And coach with when they're playing, how much coaching do you do? You know, how much are you stopping? How much are you correcting? Or how much is it let them play through it? And then, you know, what's kind of your method there?
0: Well, my method is lousy because (laughs) my method is lousy because my coaches are always yelling at me like you can't stop the play. Every time you see something you don't like, it defeats the whole purpose. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't I can't stand watching. that. I can't let that go. And they go, well, you got to let it go and you got to let them play through it. Yeah. You know, you got to let them play through it and see how they handle it. So that's something I'm trying to get way better at is if we're going to go, then let's go until there's a dead ball, until there's something that, you know, requires them to stop, you know, don't say, Hey, we're going to play five on five, keep score. They come down the floor, you know, guy posts up, somebody, you know, throws a pass in their post and it's kind of lousy. And next thing you know, you're blowing a whistle and going, all right. We need to start. You know, we need to start practicing passing in the post. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you defeat the whole purpose. <laughs> you the whole purpose of the thing. Just mm-hmm. let them play, and, and because that's what's going to happen in the game.
1: Absolutely, coach. We want to uh, transition now into a a fun segment that we always play here on the podcast called Start, Sub, or Sit. And the way the way that this goes is, we're going to give you three different basketball topics. You'll give us the one you'll start, one you'd sub, and the one you'd sit. Okay. So, Pat, I'll let you lead us in here with the first start, sub, sit.
2: All right, Coach. Uh, the first one, just a fun one, but probably in our research a little bit more near and dear to your heart than uh, basketball is is wine. So, start, sub, and sit in terms of wines from different countries California wines Italian wines or French wines
0: um well let's see it's evolved over a couple of years <laughs> early on it was almost exclusively California wines dominated my wine list yeah
2: uh uh-huh.
0: and then Italian wines came after that and very very few French wines and in the last few years, I would say it's been more Italian, French, and California in that order.
2: Yes. Just to follow up, I mean, me and Dan are wine novices, but what is it about the French wine that at the like you said at the beginning you were sitting and now you
0: come to appreciate? One is the history. It's older than the California wines. There's a subtlety sometimes to the wines. There's a lasting element to them. That's unique, I think. You know, if you drink a California wine, you know, you drink a, a really, really good Napa Cabernet, it'll knock you on your butt how the fruit just smacks you right in the forehead. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And don't get me wrong, it's really, really, really good. If you drink a French Bordeaux, you feel the subtlety of it and it has to age a little bit longer and Some of my favorite wines that I've ever, ever tasted are California cabs. But for people that are just starting out, the beauty of the Italian wines is not only do they taste, you know, exceptionally well, but you will pay less money for a really good Italian wine than you will for a California cab or a French Bordeaux. So the value of what you're getting in an Italian wine is probably the the
1: best of the three. Okay. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks coach. We wanted to give a shout out to, I know you have a restaurant of yours back in Connecticut. So
0: yeah, Manchester, Connecticut.
1: That's right. Yeah. You have your own list. Yeah. Coach, my next start subset, we'll kind of get back to a basketball. <laughs> so this next question, start subset has to do with players around the pick and roll. What you prefer, let's say in a middle ball screen. So start subset, spacing around the middle pick and roll cutting around the middle pick and roll or some sort of screening action around the middle pick and roll
0: i think in middle pick and roll i think spacing
1: okay start spacing okay
0: yeah and then add a you know a cut and finally you know some screening action which in a middle pick and roll it screws up the whole operation anyway <laughs> okay, <laughs> You know, if you got a pick and roll coming from the wing, you know, and then you get some screening action on the other side, but generally speaking, yeah, I, I think the screening action, I think that just brings more defenders somewhere where they can bottle the thing up. Coach,
2: with the cutting, you know, I, I can see a lot of times coaches like to space just because it makes the reads maybe a little bit easier for the point guard, a little bit more space. When you are going to teach a cut, How are you teaching the timing of the cut and of the ball handler trying to read everything that is going on because there's this extra body
0: and movement? The middle ball screen, that cutter may come when you find yourself in a situation where the ball handler hasn't been able to get going downhill real easily. And you know that there's a wide open spot in the middle of the lane right there that you can fill with a cut and get a layup. But I think once the guy gets their shoulders turned and they're heading downhill, you're you're not cutting anywhere unless that middle ball screen is set so far out that as you start going downhill, some guy from the baseline cuts back door for a layup. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. can get him. Otherwise, you need to stay out of the way, that guy going downhill. Because obviously what you're trying to get is you're trying to get, you know, a shot by the guy with the ball. Yeah. You know, unless you're coaching European basketball where <laughs> that guy's just getting in the lane so that you come over and help, and then you find a three. I think in Europe, anybody takes any shot other than a three, they're going to their firing squad.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Coach, back to our earlier conversation about rules versus reads in some of the, in this middle ball screen stuff, how much of it would you prefer to these off-ball cuts or screens or spacings? How much of these are rules within your offense and how much of these are eventually reads that you want your players to make?
0: Um, That's a good one. I noticed that the success that that most teams have is when they have a predetermined scenario where, when let's say you've got a ball screen and when the ball gets to a certain spot on the floor, there's some action on the other side of the floor where maybe the guy from the corners coming up to set up a back screen flare screen, you know, on that side of the floor, or there's a, You see this a lot, that European thing where the top guy's back cutting and the corner man's coming out of the corner Mm -hmm. or there's a screening action there. But it's usually when that guard is dribbling towards you and not turned the corner already and gotten into the lane. Right. I think if you just leave it random up to the guys on the team and go back to what we said earlier about that basketball IQ. If you just leave a random, that they they screw up the whole operation. <laughs> they're moving when they're not supposed to be. They're standing when they're supposed to be moving. So they get confused, like when should I? Yeah. Right. You either have a philosophy, hey, when we get to this spot on the floor with the ball, we're getting this back cut or we're getting this flare screen. Otherwise, you know, it can't be sometimes we do, sometimes we don't.
2: Okay, coach, my next third subset for you is. Screening in transition offense. So start, sub, or sit, a drag screen, setting an away screen, or setting a flare screen in transition.
0: I have found from a defensive standpoint, the hardest thing there is to guard, and that goes back to what we talked about, Mike D'Antoni stuff. Early ball screens in transition, to me, are the most difficult things to defend. Mm -hmm. So that's where I would go with that early ball screens, early drag screens by the first big guy down. That to me would be the ideal situation if you were going to use ball screens. Mm -hmm. The second one would be an away screen by one of the big guys trailing. You know, we do that a lot where, you know, we'll come down on one side. We'll send the big guy opposite to get the other guard, bring the other guard up top, hit them, and then play two on two with that guard and that big guy. And then the third thing is that flare screen. I've not seen much of that. I, I'm not familiar with, with a lot of that. The one thing that I still see, which sometimes, and I, you see this a lot in the pros, and, and I, I think this is something that every single coach used to do, and, and that is come down and play through the trailer
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. in transition. You know, come down on one side, the you know, first big guy runs somewhere, the next big guy is in the middle of the floor. You're throwing it to him and reversing it or throwing it to him and getting a dribble handoff. And, you know, some of the players that we've talked to have said, you know, in a lot of ways have said, "Okay, why are you throwing it to that big guy in the middle of the floor if that big guy is not a playmaker and it's not a shooter? Just so that they can reverse it, you know, because what happens when that big guy catches it, they want to reverse it. And now someone takes away that reverse pass. And if that big guy is not a great playmaker, you're starting your offense with a screw up.
1: Coach, with playing through that trail, if we would have thrown that into the start, sub, sit, where would that have landed for you?
0: They wouldn't start. They, we wouldn't sub them in. We wouldn't sit them. They would, they would be, become managers or you'd throw them off the team. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Plain and simple. <laughs> okay. Now, having said that, you know, when Brianna Stewart was our trailer, we threw a tour every chance we could. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so, you know, if I had, I see Denver playing a lot. If I had Joe just as my trailer, i throw it to him all the time.
1: For sure. Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. So, unless that guy's a great playmaker, well, what's the point? Coach,
2: if I can follow up with the away screen, how early do you want them setting the away screen as far as is it want, try to be looking to set that screen past half court or more at
0: that elbow? As
2: far as you're in transition, what are you looking for with that away screen?
0: That away screen, I think it all depends on what your philosophy is with the guy with the ball. OK, so if the guy with the ball is going to hit the guy on the wing and then cut, then that away screen is going to be set where that wingman coming off that away screen has a chance to come off there and shoot a three.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: OK, if that guard with the ball is going to hold it, yeah. then, you know, maybe for us, if that guard's going to hold it, it's going to be set where that guard coming off is either coming for a pitch and catch where we're going to you know, do some of that, you know, like the Celtics do a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yep.
0: Okay. Where we're going to play pitch and catch with the guard. It's coming up or we're going to curl that guy. See if we can get him the ball going into the lane. And then if we don't, we bring the post player back and we play pitch and catch or pinch post action with the big guy coming back. Okay. Yeah.
1: Coach, these, uh, the theme of this one is directional defensive schemes. So start subset forcing middle, No middle or weaking or always forcing to a weak hand.
0: Yeah. You know what? I hate all three of them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I guess you got to pick one of them, but I hate all three of them. (laughs) Which ones do you hate the least? (laughs) Well, let let me tell you. Let me tell you why. I never thought of it this way, but let me tell you why. So for a hundred years, then, you know, you were told this. Force the guys to the middle. Don't give up baseline, right? Mm -hmm. Force the guys to the middle, especially if you got a good big man in there that can just protect the rim, right? Force Mm -hmm. the guys to the middle. Then, you know, guards got really, really good. you got a lot of three-point shooters. So now, keep the ball out of the middle so that the guy has less options for kickouts and they can't get in the lane and screw up your defense. Then it became force everything to the baseline. And that seems to be the prevailing thought now. Force everything to the baseline and then rotate. Okay. Yeah. And force everybody to their weak hand. So it doesn't matter. That guy's right handed, make them go left hand no matter where they are on the floor. So those are all the things you talk about, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Here's what I've found you want to force a guy to go left, let's say they're right handed. That's probably the best option that you have. Provided your kids can remember that we're forcing them left every single play, every single spot on the floor that they're at. Mm-hmm. So that means sometimes you're going to give up middle. Sometimes you force them baseline. So it's changing all the time. Correct. Unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So it's changing all the time. So I think that one is, you know, if that's, that's the way you're going to go, you have to spend a lot of time with your guys understanding that, you know, sometimes it's middle. You got to, how do we rotate when a guy goes middle? How do we rotate when the guy goes baseline? Right. I'm sure it's easier than that, but that would be my thing. So here's what I heard. You know, the guy that used to be the assistant for the Spurs at Yep. Messina? Yeah. Messina, yeah. Okay. Here's what I heard him say. He said, the thing that I learned going in the NBA is if you say to your guard, listen, force this guy baseline or force this guy middle, the guy will be at the rim before you even know what the hell happened. (laughs) Because guys, they're so fast, they're so quick, that the minute you give them an angle, they're gone. So what I've learned, coaching my team, is if you've got tremendously quick defenders, it doesn't really matter what the hell you're doing, offensively or defense. it's going to (laughs) work. Right. (laughs) All right, it's going to work. So what I'm coming to believe now is this. You remember when Princeton, when Pete Carrillo was at Princeton? Mm-hmm. How come nobody could dribble into the lane? How come every, every shot that they gave up was a jump shot with a hand in their face? And that didn't matter if they were playing UCLA or they were playing Penn. It didn't matter. Yeah. So the philosophy was, listen, dude, keep your guy in front of you. I don't give a damn what you have to do. Keep them in front of you. So maybe there's no such thing as force them right, force them left. Just keep them in front of you the best you can.
1: So then from our trio here, you're sitting all of these and you're going to start playing straight up, basically?
0: Playing straight up and get help at the elbows. Okay. Okay, okay so maybe in essence you are forcing middle. So because in women's basketball, for instance, my guards are not six, seven, six, eight. So if I rotate a guard down to rebound because I forced baseline, now I got a 5'7 kid stuck on a 6'3 kid. Right. So I would say keep them in front, start, sub, force middle, sit, force everybody to their weekend.
1: Okay. Okay. okay.
0: <laughs> now, listen, listen. Having said that, at the end of a shot clock, whoever's in that ball screen, we're forcing them to their weekend.
1: And I think that was my follow-up is just you're kind of hitting on a theme of simplicity versus, I guess, complexity in a defensive scheme and how much you prefer to keep things simple and have them light on their feet.
0: Yes. And you know what else I prefer on ball screens anymore? All five guys switching. I don't care what mistakes they make. I don't care. All five guys switching. And number two, trapping every ball screen. And three, against some teams, hard hedging every ball screen. I don't care what. And why is that, Coach? Because the guards just want to turn the corner and get downhill. So if you come out and you slow them down just a little bit, yeah. Now here's the problem with that: your big guys are going to foul out <laughs> if they're not any good. So you right. can only do that <laughs> when your big men are mobile. Well, sure, my yeah. thing then is, if your big men are mobile, why not just switch and get it over with?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. What was it the uh, the Brad Stevens line? Someone asked defensive pick and roll, what you would do. And he said, if you could switch everything, just switch it and enjoy winning.
0: Yeah. If you had five guys that could switch everything, because think about it. If you're coaching in the NBA, I remember asking a guy who was a general manager at the time of the Portland Trail Bridges, uh, Brad Greenberg, Seth's brother. He came to watch one of our guys play at UConn. So I had known him from before and I was talking to him. I said, so, hey, guys, what do you do at practice? Like, do you guys practice like during the season? He goes, uh, well, well, yeah, we, we practice. I go, what do you do? He goes, well, say we practice for an hour during the season. I go, well, what do you do? He goes, well, we shoot. And then we spend 40 minutes on how we're guarding the pick and roll that night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Goes, That's the only decision you got to make. Is how we garden the pick and roll that night. Well, <laughs> if you know you're switching it all the time, you can shoot more now.
1: Right. (laughs) That's absolutely true.
2: (laughs) Coach, I'm just curious when you do switch, what are the maybe the guidelines you're giving on the switch? And when the big's on the ball, what are you telling your big? Is it just keep gapping, keep them in front, or what are kind of your guidelines?
0: Yeah. You got one job to do don't let this guy get a layup. All right. (laughs) So just keep them in front of you. You're long enough that you can contest without. You know, getting yourself in trouble. Have this guard have to make a play. Keep your hands up. Keep your feet moving. Keep them out of the lanes as best you can. Don't give up a lay. And now you're guarding the other guys. You know that guy can't pass it to anybody because you're locking up the three-point shooters.
1: Yeah. We thank you for a start sub said that was a lot of fun. You're off the hot seat there, so we learned a lot about, <laughs> about wine and directional defenses and all that. So thank you for that. Before we close today, hey, thank you so much for yeah, your time. Man. This has been a lot of fun. Yes. So thanks for chatting uh, with Pat and I
0: appreciate it. And I usually don't, you know, get a chance to, to do these basketball things. You know, usually it's, you know, somebody wants to do a zoom because they want to do a thing for coaches and I got to talk for an hour, <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> which, you know, I, I'd rather answer questions from, you know, basketball people that are really thought provoking and, to be able to do that was a good hour spent for
1: me. Well, thanks, Coach. Well, We'll, we'll get you out of here on this question. You've been in this business and coach for a long time and had a lot of success. Is there anything in the past, say, five to 10 years that you've changed your mind about when it comes to coaching and leadership that something you thought was true or was something you believed in quite a bit in your younger years and then now maybe you think differently about it?
0: Yeah, and this is just maybe not so much me, but I've had to adjust probably to the times. I used to be able to give more information to a to a team or to a kid, and they would get it. I used to be able to do things in timeouts or in practice or at crucial times, you know, make an adjustment that you knew... That You know, they were going to get it. Boom. They got it. I found the last, you know, number of years that kids coming out of high school, they don't practice. They all have personal trainers. These personal trainers give them the ball and they work on all kinds of stuff with the ball. They don't guard anybody when they do their personal trainer stuff. They don't ever pass and cut and go screen for somebody. They don't ever run a play. They probably have, you know, a bunch of tennis balls and cones uh, that they beat, you know, they beat them every day. They, they never lose. You know, they yeah. have bands, they have tennis balls, they have cones, they got, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they shoot and they shoot and they shoot and they work on one-on-one. So you get these guys that are pretty good one-on-one players, but they have no concept of how to play basketball. So I have found that I've had to adjust how much I teach, how I teach it, how much information can I give them. So the changes for me have been to scale down, you know, and and be even more simple. That's why, you know, I've been thinking long and hard about playing a lot of zone next year. Okay. Make Mm -hmm. scouting reports easy. You know, I found myself a couple of times this year going, you realize we're going through a scouting report on the team? I've got guys that if we did a scouting report on our offense, they wouldn't get half of a break. <laughs> and now I want them to learn the other team's offense.
2: <laughs> right. This right.
0: is insanity. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's insane. And then I have guys coming to me with these analytics, with all these charts, and they go, hey, look. If you sign up with this company, man, you know what they do? Look what they send you on the other team. And they send you like 30 pages on the other team. (laughs) And I said, what what are we talking about here? I said, what are we talking about here? So I found, you know, just recently that you got to bring everything back. You got to bring everything back down.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet to this thing? I have like
1: Slapping Backboard.
2: Slapping Glass.
1: Slapping Glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good.
2: Slapping Glass.